Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, I'm going to open up the Stadensky Family Photo Album, if that's okay. Uh, we'll start with this picture here. This is a picture of us at Disney World. Now, there's a point behind this, and we've got a little story that involves, see that cute little girl in the purple there? That's my youngest daughter, Andra. And when we went to Disney at this time, she was just a peanut, just a tiny little girl. And for some reason, I had it in my head that it would be a good idea for her to go on Space Mountain. <laughs> Here's a picture of us walking to Space Mountain. Yeah, you know, bat lapses in parenting here. Space Mountain, if you're not familiar with the idea here, Space Mountain is a themed roller coaster. It's actually the first roller coaster I ever went on as a kid. And in my head, it was such a fun, great experience that I thought my little thrill-seeking peanut is going to love this. You go inside this thing, and instead of it just being like a classic roller coaster, its, it's theme is space. So you're like on this rocket ship, and you can't see when you're going to go down. You can't see when you're going to turn. It's you know, stars and these kind of things. So in, in my head, I didn't remember it being as fast as and intense as it, as it was. So here's a picture now to put things in perspective. Do you see where that little person is? There's a little tiny circle at her head. That's how tall you've got to be to go on the ride, which was exactly how tall she was. So still, I'm not listening to all these red flags. I'm, um, I'm moving forward with this, this plan. Now, I don't have any more pictures uh, about this, but let's leave this up as I, I tell about this, the, the most terrifying 2.5 minutes of my life. Um, when I went on Space Mountain last time, you could sit, if you were a parent, you could hold your kid in front of you. You, you could actually have them in your lap, and you could just hold on. So, so as I was imagining this great experience with my thrill-seeking daughter, I was picturing I can just hold on to this little girl and tell her it's okay. Just close your eyes, you know, and all that kind of thing. So that's what was going on in my head. Well, then I get up to the front of the line with the little peanut, and, and they had changed the ride. I think it was 2009 or something like this. I just did a search. I'm like, was I crazy? No, they changed the actual cars. So instead of being able to have your daughter sit in your lap, they all had to be in individual seats. And unlike the, the great rides in Minnesota where we got those nice big things that buckle us in, right? They come over your shoulders. No one's going to ever fly out of that. It was one of those little T-bar deals. So I have no idea to this day, maybe it was for a sermon illustration. I don't know. I have no idea to this day why I didn't say, we get to the front of the line and go, whoa, what are we do? we're not doing this. Or, or maybe ride through it once first, you know, and then try. I don't know. But something was going on. Too many Disney drinks or something. And, 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 and so we go on this, this roller coaster, right? And, and I'm not exactly. This was the scariest two and a half minutes of my life. Because around every turn, I'm picturing this little girl flying out, you know. And, and not only that, we, it, it snaps you pretty hard. I'm picturing that little dainty neck of hers just going, snap. You know, and so, so I wish I had this picture, but they, they, you know they take the pictures of you in the rides? The picture of me, because I'm sitting right behind her, is like this. Like I'm, I'm trying to hold her in, you know, when they snap the picture. That was how it was in the ride, just trying to keep this little girl from flying out. Now, I mean, I can laugh now, but at the time I was terrified because when you're a dad... And you've got this little child. You want to protect this little child. You know? There's something in you that says, protector, 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 protector. It's, it's what you do. It's, it's how you're wired. And, and you don't have to be a parent, do you, to have those instincts with kids. I, I, you know, looking out in this room, I know most of you, I don't know all of you, but I would assume all of you, there's something in you that says, children, you protect children. I bet there's there's 
most, if not all of us, if we saw a burning building, we knew there was a kid, and we knew we could somehow help them, we'd go in. We'd go into a burning building. I, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say, hungry lion is over here, kid is over here. We step between the hungry lion and the kid. I mean, some of us, we love kids so much that we will take our hard-earned money and buy a minivan with it. <laughs> we'll even do that because we love kids. We're, we're willing to do anything. So the idea that somebody would harm kids, that shocks us and that repulses us. In fact, I'm going to put a picture on the screen. And if you know the backstory, I bet this causes a reaction in you. It's a man named Jerry Sandusky. He was recently convicted of abusing kids. And not just abusing kids, he used his position of power and authority to do so. Well, we, in our country, we have laws against that. We have laws against that, and he's serving a life sentence. He was tried, he was convicted. He'll spend the rest of his life behind bars. Here's where I'm going with all this. There was a time in history where, where the Jerry Sanduskies of the world, they considered it their, their, their perk. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to write down probably the most crass thing we've ever had you write down here in this church. There's a place to write this in your notes. What we now consider child abuse, it was considered a perk of the powerful in the ancient world. Can you believe that? And there was a time when it was considered a perk of the powerful to be able to abuse a child. In the ancient world, among the Greeks and the Romans, it was not unusual at all for powerful men to do all kinds of things that Jerry Sandusky did. It was just a perk associated with power. And child abuse in, in different forms, it was widespread in the ancient world. Widespread in the ancient world. In fact, the Jewish culture is one of the few cultures where it wasn't widespread. There were those who were powerful enough where they could decree that children could be put to death. They could actually decree it. They were, they were so powerful. And the most infamous of these is a, a guy named Herod the Great. And one of the most famous accounts of this is found in our Bibles. If you have a Bible, it's open up. This is in Matthew chapter 2. Um, as we're turning here, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack in the back, and during this visit or any visit, if you don't have a Bible at home, please please take one as our gift to you. This is um, Matthew 2.16. This is, this is history we're reading here. Uh, Herod... The great is not somebody that is, is, is a myth that was made up. In fact, you can go to Israel. They just opened, if they didn't just open it, it's opening soon, an exhibit with artifacts from Herod. This is a real person who did these things. And here we write of, of something that happened when he heard that Jesus had been born and he heard that people were referring to him as the king of the Jews. This is what happened. Then Herod, Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by these wise men where he already heard about this Jesus, he became furious he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. If you were powerful enough, you could not just abuse kids, you, you could have them killed. You could issue a decree with your words, you could have kids killed. Herod, he was a powerful man. He was a powerful man. Rome was a superpower of the world at the day. But Rome granted Herod a title. The title was King of the Jews. And they gave him oversight over this section of the Middle East when Herod the Great was just 33 years old. 
it's particularly remarkable because there was, there was this huge conflict. And in this huge conflict, there was a guy named Caesar Augustus. He wasn't Caesar at the time. He, but he was up matched against Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Guess whose side Herod was on? Herod was on Mark Anthony's side, Cleopatra's side, the losing side. Caesar Augustus, the guy who later becomes Caesar Augustus, he wins the battle. Here's how shrewd, here's how bold Herod is. Instead of running and going into hiding, Herod asks for an audience with Caesar. He asks for an audience with Caesar. And then he says this, look at this. He comes up to Caesar and he says, Caesar, or he comes up to Augustus, he says, what I ask of you is to consider not whose friend, but what a good friend I was. Referring to Mark Anthony. This was a time when you would put to death the entire family line of your competition. Herod, so shrewd, so bold, so self-confident, he comes up, he says this. Imagine if I was on your team. Wow. Powerful man. Powerful man. If a Hollywood casting director saw Herod the Great standing next to Chuck Norris, and there were two roles open, one for Lone Wolf, Wolf McQuaid and Diary of Wimpy Kid, Herod the Great's getting Lone Wolf McQuaid. Chuck Norris is getting di- Diary of Wimpy Kid. This is Herod the Great. He is this powerful, powerful man. And a powerful man like him, he could order his soldiers to break into the homes of peasant families and murder children. You could do that back in the day. In the ancient world, the children were noted for fear, weakness, helplessness. To be a child was dependent, defenseless, fragile, and weak. And often, those associated with power would use their power to abuse these little ones. But you didn't have to necessarily be a, a figure of influence. In fact, they, they, there was a, uh, you could still treat children in ways that most of us can't imagine. One archaeological dig found the bones of nearly 100 babies who had apparently been murdered and then thrown into a sewer. More common than that was a practice that was known as exposure. If a wealthy family didn't want to further divide their estate, if a poor family felt as though they already had too many mouths to feed, if a baby was conceived out of wedlock, if the baby appeared less perfect than other babies, or if the baby was a girl, then the baby had a much higher risk of being left in the woods or left at a dump. And generally when that happened, the baby would die. The few times it wouldn't die, here's what would happen. Someone involved in the slave trade would see the baby, pick the baby up, care for the baby until the baby was of use for someone else. Then they would sell the baby into slavery. That was the ancient world, most of the ancient world. So so why is it? that so many people in so many cultures all around the world don't see things that way anymore. What happened? Jesus happened. Jesus taught us a new and a better way. And he said, follow me. It was Jesus who brought about the greatest child protection movement history's ever seen. It was Jesus. So much of what Jesus modeled, so much of what he taught, it is so interwoven into the fabric of our culture, we just assume it's always been this way. But that's not the case. And today, if you're just joining us, today is part four of an eight-part series. And what we've been looking at in this series are some of the ways where Jesus changed the world. And today we're going to zero in on this area, how Jesus changed the world for kids. In fact, I'd encourage you to, to write, write this down. 
Uh, here's a statement that is, that is so true. To this day, children experience greater darkness in regions where the light of Jesus doesn't shine. I wish I could say that, that what we saw in the, in the ancient days has been eradicated today. That's not the case. It, to this day, children still experience greater darkness in regions where the light of Jesus doesn't shine, whether that's a continent, whether that's a country, whether that's a city, whether that's a household, whether that's a church that's not being cared for in the way it should be cared for. To this day, children experience greater darkness in regions where the true light of Jesus does not shine. Jesus got it. Jesus understood what it was like to be a kid growing up in a kingdom that wasn't kind to kids. Jesus was born to unwed parents. He was poor. He was targeted for death by the most powerful person in his region. And unlike Herod, who was described as good-looking and powerfully built by the history books of Jesus, it is said, quote, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This child who was born to unwed parents, who was poor, who was targeted for death. This baby who didn't have the right pedigree, didn't have the right look, he grew up and brought what God had taught his people to the world. You see, I I shouldn't have used the word new, that Jesus brought a new teaching. It wasn't so much that Jesus had brought a new teaching. It's that Jesus took these teachings that the Jewish people had and he brought them to the world. Here's an example of of the ancient Jewish scriptures that are now in our in our Christian Bible, this is one example where, where you can see how God sees the world. And this is a person reflecting on that, on how God sees the world. It's, it's found in our Bibles in Psalm 139, verse 13. It says this, as this person was reflecting on, on how God sees us and God's involvement in our lives. For you, meaning God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows this well. In the kingdom of God, every child is a prince or every child is a princess. Why? Because every child is a child of the king, the king of kings. Kids aren't burdens to be discarded. They're not to be bought. They're not to be sold. They're not to be abused like property. Kids are bearers of divine glory who can touch our conscience and still our selfishness. It's this thing, we, we touched on this last week, it's this principle called inherent worth. They're valuable because somebody says they're valuable. Let's go back to our family photo album here. Um, here here is our two of the most prized possessions in the Stadensky household. This is Blankiato. They're a, they didn't come as a set, but now they're a set. Andra, the little girl I was talking about, this is her blanky auto. They've been with her as long as she can remember. She goes to sleep with them every night when she feels scared, when she feels upset. She needs blanky auto. If our house was on fire and you had to scoop up an armful of things, it'd be blanky auto. They, they, they'd be in there. And why? If, if we put blanky auto on the auction block, are we going to get anything for blanky auto? No, unless Andrew's bidding. You know? We're, <laughs> But why are they valuable? They're valuable because Andra says they're valuable. Why are kids valuable? Because God says they're valuable. All of them. All of them. Every kid. Every kid. Is an an infinite worth. And God doesn't just say that. God takes his very image and he puts it in them. Every kid 
every kid. And then, if you extrapolate that, every adult, every teen, bears God's image. We have value because we bear the image of the most valuable one there is. We're loved, we're valued by God. And again, this isn't a new teaching that Jesus brought. The Jewish culture, they love, they cherish children. But it was Jesus who brought this teaching to the world. And let's, let's go back to the book of, of Matthew where we, we started. We're going to look at a couple passages here from Matthew. Here's one that we look at fairly frequently here, especially when we have an uh, infant dedication. It says this. This is Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like these children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How how different is that from the world? In the world, Herod is the greatest, right? In the kingdom of this world, Herod is the greatest. In the kingdom of heaven, it's different. Ours, the kingdom of heaven, ours is a kingdom where the goal isn't for kids to grow up and become like Herod. Ours is a kingdom where Herod is told he can be born again if he will first humble himself like a child. As a direct result of Jesus glorifying humility, now people like Herod the Great, we look at them and we say, you look ridiculous in your purple robe, in your your crown. We look at that, we mock that. I mean, who, it would be the death of a politician if they said, oh yeah, by the way, call me the great. You know, if you started ascribing the title the great to yourself, it would be, people would laugh at you. Well, Herod the great became Herod the dead and his influence diminished from there. Yet the influence of a child born in a manger continues to increase exponentially. And his father, his followers, following the example of Jesus, they abandon the widespread practices of exposure and infanticide. New kingdom communities began pooling their resources to ensure that kids who didn't have parents would be taken in and cared for. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus brought about the greatest child protection movement the world had ever seen. The kingdom of heaven is present wherever people look to God as king. And when God is king, hear this, we don't just value kids, we protect kids. Did you hear that? When God is king, we don't just value kids, we protect them. I want to show you some strong words, and these words are a direct quote from Jesus. Direct quote. And what's interesting about this passage is we have we have this, what you're going to look at here in Matthew, this is val- this is an eyewitness who recorded these words. And then these eyewitness words are then further validated through two other accounts, first century accounts. So, so here's the one that, that, that we're going to look at, Matthew 18, 5 through 6. You'll see in parentheses, I'm referring to these other, other passages where this same thing is, is validated in two separate uh, first century documents. So it says this who, in, in Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And here's the the strong language. Look at this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be 
better for that person to have a great millstone fastened around their neck and have them drown in the depth of the sea. It would be better for that to happen to you than it would be for you to, to tempt one of these little ones to sin. To stumble is, is, is another way of translating that. All right, I, I want to show you how this is, this, is, this is strong language. Now, the idea of a millstone is, is something that the people who would have heard this would have really understood. You know, one of the things that you just did a daily chore is, is you take grain and you'd use a stone to grind it into wheat. And there were different types of millstones and different words for the millstones. One of the millstones maybe weighed about this much, as much as this weight. And, and it would be a hand millstone. If you were just making a little bit of food for your family, you'd, you'd just use the stone to grind wheat. Now, in this passage, the word for this kind of millstone is not used. There was a word for a small millstone like this. That's not the word that was used here. The word that was used here describes the big industrial-sized millstone that was probably ten times the weight of this that would have to be turned by a donkey. Well, you have that thing strapped around your waist or your, your neck. Someone throws you in the Lake Malax. You know, some of you might be able to get to shore. You have ten of these things around your neck. You get thrown. You're not going, you're not going to make it. That's the word that Jesus used, that kind of millstone. It is better for you to have that millstone wrapped around your neck throw you into the sea than it is for you to tempt one of these to sin or cause one of these to sin. Now, I want to show you something that, that really gave me a sick feeling in my stomach. Because I looked up these other passages. Um, there are some, sometimes in the scripture you have what's called a parallel. Maybe you've heard that, that word when it comes to the, to the Bible before. A parallel text in the Bible is where you have the, it, something is recorded in the Bible once, and then you find that same instance recorded somewhere else. And that's called a parallel. Look at, look at what is found in the parallel in Luke 17. This, this one gave me just a, a sick feeling in my stomach. Because Jesus says to his disciples, as recorded by Luke, temptations to sin, they're sure to come. And we all know that, right? There are going to be things that come into our lives, all of us, every day. You won't get through today without a temptation. They're going to come. But look what it says. Woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations are going to come, but woe to the one through whom the temptation comes. And look what, where the thought goes. It would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones sin. Why did that give me a sick feel in my stomach? Because that's really easy to do. It is so easy to put a source of temptation in front of a kid. When, as soon as those words came out of my mouth in the first service, someone just quietly said, yeah, turn on the TV. Just turn on the TV. <laughs> I think about, you know, give them an iTunes gift card. They might be tempted to take that and download something that they shouldn't download. Just give them a phone and, and, and don't supervise that, you know. And, and it's beyond just the electronics, which are just so obvious. It's even our example. 
How easy is it for us to provide a source of temptation by the way we live? In the example we set or don't set. Where, where in our lives, things are more important than God. In our lives, where, where, where we live lives of insignificance. Where, where God is, is a Sunday thing or an occasional thing. How easy is it for us? For the kids in our lives. I'm not just talking about your children if you have them. I'm talking about the kids in our lives. How easy is it for us to do this? We live in a world that tempts kids to believe that life is better if you just give in to your desires. It's better if you mock those in authority. And it's better if you do what's right in your own eyes. We have a world that will... This just infuriates me. It infuriates me that there are people who will intentionally profit over telling a kid what the kid wants to hear. How do you combat that? By giving them something better. By giving them something better. Please write this down. A magical kingdom for kids exists where the Spirit of Christ fills his people. Let me say that again. A magical kingdom for kids exists where the Spirit of Christ fills his people. And again, I'm being honest with you. I'm feeling conviction here. I'm not speaking with the conviction that comes from, hey, I'm living this out, just follow me. It comes from the conviction part of, okay, God, I need your help because I'm not doing this well. We have the opportunity to invite kids into a kingdom that Disney cannot match. As I was working on this, I was reminded um, of a song called Tell Me Again. This is an old song by a guy named Jeff Moore. I wish I would have thought of this early enough in the week to be able to send out an email to say, download this song, listen to it 20 times before you get here today. Look at, look at some of the words. I put the words in your notes. This is the type of opportunity we have with kids. He starts off by talking, describing this little boy sitting in a metal folding chair in what appears to be a Sunday school room. He can see that shepherd boy, his sling in the air. He can feel a giant hit with a boom. In that red room, I saw the Red Sea part. Two by two animals getting in an ark. And Mrs. Keene gently would say, the God of the past is still God today. So tell me again of the old, old stories. Tell me again of these faithful who walked. Tell me about lion's dens, fiery furnaces of Noah, rainbows, donkeys that talked. I don't want to forget. So tell me again. Then he fast forwards. Young man sitting in a desk in a wooden chair in what appears to be a high school class. He can see there is a battlefield and there are giants everywhere who are saying the Bible, it's a thing of the past. In this new age, you believe what you want to believe because God is whatever you want it to be. And I can hear Mrs. Keene gently say, God of the past is still God today. So tell me again how the God of the ages turned history's pages and saw my need. Tell me again of shepherds and wise men and a star that would lead them to a baby who was born that I could be born again. Tell me again of that gospel story. Tell me again how the whole world was lost. How the only begotten with grace so amazing gave up his life an old rugged cross. I don't want to forget. Tell me again. Those of you who are Sunday school teachers, download this, listen to this, and hear God say, well done. Well done. Because we have an opportunity to tell them of a world that once existed where these things happened. And beyond that, here's where the conviction comes, beyond that, the past, 
The past isn't just the, the, the past. The past merely serves as an inspiration of what could be right now. What could be right now if we fully yielded ourselves to God? What we could truly offer people, what we could truly experience. God invites us into a magical kingdom where he tells us things that we couldn't have otherwise known. Where he changes lives. Where he still works miracles, he still takes down giants. Can I get a... Isn't it true? He still does these things. Many of us have seen it with our own eyes. We've experienced it in our own lives. God invites us even beyond that into a family where we are loved, not because of what we wear or how cool we are or how much money we give them, but because we bear his image. We're invited into that kingdom. This is such a convicting message for me because I don't want the kids in my life, not just the kids who are my kids, I don't want the kids in my life to just look at him and go, oh, he's a religious guy and he makes these sacrifices and he puts in these hours. I don't want him to see that. I want him to see Jesus. I want him to see something different in me. I want them to see that you can take anything I have and I'm still going to be able to rejoice. I want him to see that. I want him to see that when I pray, God speaks. And he talks and he does things. I want to see beyond that. I want to see that they see in me that I have the heart of Christ. That the same spirit that was in him is in me. And that I'm not just concerned about my little world. But that I care about other kids. And that they can see that and they can catch that. And they can grab that. And they can get beyond their little worlds of little things catch a vision for what their life could be if the Spirit of Christ was working through them and they began to touch others. Before we close today, I want to show you a clip. We showed this clip about five years ago. And if you saw it then, you remember it today. It's this clip. It's so powerful because it's not scripted. They had the camera one night in India and they just let the camera run. And then they just they cut it up. They just spliced it. But this is real footage. This is not just something that, that Hollywood scripted. And you guys, you've, you've seen it. You remember it, don't you? I want to show it. And here's why I want to show it. I want to show it because this is what Jesus sees. This is what God sees. And he wants to help us see with his eyes so that we're not just concerned about the kids around us, but we're concerned about those other kids that we don't see. So let's watch this clip. It's only about a minute long. Let's take a look. It's me. 
first time I saw that clip, it just wrecked me. Because it was 2007. And in 2007, the girl I've been telling you about, Andra, she was that old. And that girl in the clip moved like Andra. That girl, girl in, the, in the clip had the same basic look and, and build of Andra. And I just found myself thinking, wow. Who's there to protect that little girl from the Jerry Sanduskys of the world? Who's there to, to look at that little girl and tell her she's a princess? Who's there to take that little girl and, and welcome her into this magical kingdom where an all-powerful God sits and listens to her every word and offers her entrance into eternity with him. Who's there to look out for that kid? Well, one of the most powerful parts of that clip for me is when that guy just walks by. And as much as we want to say... I wouldn't walk by. We are walking by if we're not doing something. Because these girls are everywhere and the boys are everywhere. I just talked to a guy, Brian Heyer was telling me, yeah, I've been to India. As far as you can see at night, there's the kids. Except the ones he saw, they, they'd put the blankets on themselves, even if it was 100 degrees because of the mosquitoes and malaria. They were everywhere. We can't, as individuals... We, as one individual, you can't take care of every kid. But who are you ministering to in Jesus' name? Who are you setting the example for? Who are you praying for? Who are you telling, you're a princess, you're a prince? Who is God calling you and what's he calling you to do? On the screens here, I, I just put up a couple pictures representative of of. Of, you can make a difference. You can't, you can't change everything with one person, but you can make a difference. I have a picture here of Mary Lochner with her emu and my girls. And, and there are so many of you who are playing a role in our life. You're, you're speaking into our girls and you're telling them they're princesses and you're setting an example that they see. They see a difference in you than they see in some other parents and other grown-ups and other teenagers. They see it. And there's opportunities all around you, whether you have kids of your own or not, to pour into other people's kids. Someone was telling me about their neighbor kids and how their neighbor kids are showing up at their house because it's a safe place. Some of you have nieces and nephews, grandkids, little sisters, little brothers. You've got kids in your life. What is God asking you to do as far as example setting, speaking into, praying for, helping? And then there's a picture of us with a family that's real precious to us down in Mexico. I, I can't tell you what an advocate I am for child sponsorship. And here's why. Child sponsorship puts, a, if it's done well, it puts a caring adult looking out for a vulnerable kid. Did you hear that? If, if, if it's done well, what you're able to do is you're able to put a caring adult looking out for a little girl in a yellow dress saying, I'm not going to let the Jerry Sanduskys get to you. I'm not going to let you go hungry. I'm not going to let you go without clothes. I'm not going to let your birthday go by unrecognized. You know, 
There's adoption. There's foster care. There's so many different ways to reach out to kids who aren't in your immediate uh, immediate circle of influence. So I'm going to ask for something very specific today. I'd, I'd like you to take out this yellow sheet of paper, and I'd also like you to take out the connection card. Here's what I'm going to ask. This is a season that we're in called Lent. And in this season of Lent, it's a time where we, we are particularly aware of the importance of reflection and repentance. So what I want you to do is we're going to take a little bit of time here in just a moment where Jill's just going to play an instrumental. She's just going to play some music. There's not going to be talking. There's not going to be words. This is so you can just listen and just go to God and say, God, what would you have me to say I'm sorry for? And I don't know what it's going to be. Just listen. Just say, God, forgive me for, and then just listen, and then write it down. It may be something very much related to this. It might be something about, God, forgive me for just walking by. Forgive me for, for not setting the example that you have me to set. I don't know what it's going to be, but just go and say, God, what would you have me to say I'm sorry for? And then this next section. This is so important because you could just walk around feeling guilty about all the things you're not doing, or you could say, Spirit of the Christ, fill me and show me what you would have me to do. And one of the beautiful things here that we see in the scriptures is that as we say we're sorry, God forgives us, and not just that, he then we're cleansed. He can send his spirit into us. We become a temple of the spirit of Christ. And so now the spirit that can give us the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ, that can help us to see as Christ saw, that, can, that, can, that is filled with power, that can come in us. And God can and does great things through people who say, forgive me, here I am, what would you have me to do? Just do that exercise. And then no one's going to see this. I, I want what I encourage you to do then when you're done, just write it down and stick it in this mailbox. I'm going to put the mailbox right up there. Just stick it in there. I, I'm the only one that has a key to this, and I'm not going to read them. We're just going to shred them. This is, that's between you and God. Okay? But then here's the reason I had you take out the connection card. For some of you, there's going to be a practical step to that. And the practical step might be, I'd like to learn more about child sponsorship. And if that's it, just on the back of your connection card, write, make sure you put your name on it, but then write, tell me more about child sponsorship, and we'll have uh, Janet Jameson or somebody get in touch and just say, here's, here's one way you can sponsor a kid. If you're saying, hey, I'd like to help kids here in the city, I bet Tim wouldn't mind answering some of those emails, would you? We, there's all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways you could serve kids in the city through some of our partners. And so write it down. I'd like to learn more about serving kids in the city. Put it in the connection card. Put it in this box. And some of you might just say, you know what? I feel right now I'd like to do more here, right here with the kids in our midst. I, maybe I can't teach, but I can help set up, whatever. Just, just write down connection card. I'd like to help with kids here. Put it in the connection box. So I'm going to have that right up here. Um, I'll pray and Jill will play some music and then just, there's no ushers or anything like that. Just come up. There's something about physically doing it, isn't it? There's something about physically just getting up and saying, okay, here it is. God, I, I, I'm committing to this. And then also during this time, we're going to have um, some people that would, be, would love to serve communion to you. And so we'll have some people on that side and some people on that side. And the same thing, not as an usher deal, but just as you feel led, come on up and receive communion. So communion servers, whoever you are today, um, as soon as I finish praying, if you could come up so we can get you all into place, uh, we'll have you do that. And then we'll have some songs. We'll continue to worship through songs. Um, and also during this time, Joel, if you could just do this, uh, Joel and some others will be available for prayer. So look for people with those purple name tags. They would love to pray for you about anything, whether it's related to this message 
or, or, or something else. So let me pray now for this time. Let's seal it, and then uh, let's let you jump in. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're, that you're so personal, that you don't, you don't see masses, you see people. Help us to see people. Because we can touch a life. We can't help masses. We can touch a life with your help and your power. So Lord, I pray for, uh, for this time that you would make it your own, that, that you would come and make it holy, God. Make it holy so that no voices that aren't of you come in. Lord, let our minds hear from you. Tell us what you would have us right now to say we're sorry for. And we thank you that you desire to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that your Holy Spirit can come into this clean temple. And then, Spirit, give us your mind. Give us that mind of Christ. Guide us, Counselor, towards what you would have us to do, what, what one or two steps you would have us to take to help kids enter into this magic kingdom. And, Lord, I pray for the kids who grew up, who are now a teen or an adult, who just, right now what they need is they just need you to come back and they need to know that you're their child. Father, we pray that your spirit would descend on them, fill them with your love and your grace and have them experience a touch from you this morning that helps them to become whole again. Help them to know that they're of great value and that you want nothing more than for them to come home to you and your people. Lord, make this time holy. Not just our thoughts, but these elements, this juice, this bread. Make it for us, your body and blood, to to help unite us once again with you and your ways. We thank you for the example that you set. We aspire to it. And we ask for your spirit to fill us so that it may be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion servers, would you come forward?